Listening Dog Media. I just cannot get my head into thinking glam up today. And this is why I look shit. You don't look shit, you look gorgeous. Thank you. Not fishing, but really in a me. Really in a me. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. A woman would come up to me and said, I never even considered being a DJ. Wow, you just inspired me. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. And I just thought that, because I hadn't learned from when I was like 15, like all the boys around me, I just thought I'd never catch it. You can't wait until you feel ready. You just got to get out there and make it happen. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I am going to look up from a deck and I am going to sing along and I am going to wave at people and say hi and do whatever just to keep the The energy energy turning in the room. And with me for this episode is a female DJ who made her name in a world of male DJs. The club that I played at and the music that I played was different and it was that that helped me to move quickly through the ranks. She's played some of the most prestigious venues in the world. I fell like a cat on four feet in the middle of this flesh night. And she once supported Curtis Mayfield. We got these support slots, which were just mental. Mental. I knew what stage presence was. I knew how to project when I got on a stage. So I knew. DJ Paulette, welcome to How To DJ. (laughs) <laughs> Hello, I like the way you got Curtis Mayfield in there. Yeah, you can get Deacon Blue in there as well because we supported them as well. <laughs> well, I want to hear those stories uh, first, Paulette. Where did you grow up and uh, what was your childhood like? I grew up in Manchester. I was born in Crumpsall Hospital, North Manchester General Hospital. So I'm a Manchester girl born and bred. I was born into a very, very musical household. My mother was a singer. She sang jazz and cabaret. My dad couldn't carry a tune in a paper bag if he tried, but he really loved music. So my mum really was the driving force behind the family. I've got six sisters and one brother. All of us loved music. All of us played instruments. All of us performed, you know, we sang, we danced, you know, my sisters went on to audition for Junior Showtime. You know, my mum put on shows at the West Indian Centre and we all did a turn, you know, and I remember that very clearly from being like maybe even one or two years old, me and my twin doing a bit of a turn and never coming off the stage and spoiling everybody's acts after that because we loved it so much. (laughs) Some things never change. But that's where it started, really. I've got a really musical family. I started clubbing when I was 15 years old. Um, Well, I started buying records when I was seven or eight with my spends. I got a paper round when I was 11, 12, and I was buying records with my paper round money and started building up a record collection really early on. And I started going to clubs when I was 15 and I've pretty much been to every club in Manchester, starting off at Pips and then went to Berlin, DeVille's, The Ritz, The Hacienda, Placemate 7, you name it. I went to them all um, before I even started DJing. Like I'm a music head. When did you decide you wanted a career in music? When I was little. (laughs) 
I was always doing shows for my sisters and that they never watched. And <laughs> and we had these French windows in our house in Fallowfield that opened out onto the garden. It sounds really like decadent. It wasn't really, but it was just like a feature window that opened out onto the garden and there was a step in front of it. And I'd always be doing shows on the step for whoever was in the sitting room. They weren't watching, but they didn't have to be watching. I was just doing shows for someone. And when I wasn't on the step, me and my twin would be performing on chairs, like, because we were just forever watching musicals on TV and we were just always singing and dancing. So we were always pretending that we were doing shows for people and playing the piano and dedicating these songs. This is for my husband in the audience. That's just who I wanted to be. I knew in some way that I would be in music. And then in the early 80s, I think it was probably 84 when I got my first job. And I auditioned for a band and I was singing in a band called <laughs> Bernie Hot Hot. Terrible name for a band, but with David Dunn, who I'd met at Piccadilly Radio where I was working. And that started me off singing. And I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a singer. But then, you know, that band folded and I auditioned for lots of other bands and I was always getting fired because whenever I am rehearsing, just the same as when I'm traveling to a DJ gig, I'm not hyper glam. I'm always dressed down. But when it got to the gig, shh, wish it, wish it, wish it. You know, it's like Wonder Woman turning round and all of a sudden this person had come out who the band hadn't quite expected their second lead singer to look like however I looked. And I, I scrub up well, <laughs> you know, for a northern girl, I scrub up well. And I learned well watching my mum. I watched my mum perform so many times. So I knew what stage presence was. I knew how to project when I got on a stage. I knew all of those things were second nature to me. I'd had it kind of drummed into me by my mum because that's what my mum did. So I'd always been in music and I'd always known that I wanted to be on the stage. But then when I got out onto the stage, then there was this issue with the lead singers that were like, she's a bit... <laughs> <laughs> She's not. <laughs> How come you once supported Curtis Bayfield? How did that happen? Because our band, Bernie Hot Hot, I mean, this is David Dunn. I mean, David Dunn went from Piccadilly Radio to Mercury Records to MTV to, you know, Atlantic 252 to wherever. Since he was 18 years old, he's always been very canny and he's always had the gift of the gab. And he did the promotion for our band and he managed to wheedle us into the Curtis Mayfield gig and the Deacon Blue gig at the International One and Two. So we got to do these like support slots, which were just mental, really. But we could cut it, even though the band had a really terrible name. We were good. We were a covers band, but our covers were great. We did a lot of Stevie Wonder, which was fine by me because he's my favourite. And that's how we got those gigs. 
how did the band then turn into DJing for you? Oh, because the band fell apart and then I began doing backing vocals for other people. And the DJing came by chance because a friend of ours, Tommy, knew a girl called Adele who was putting on a party at the Number One Club. And she'd spent all the money on hiring the club and printing the flyers and the posters and all of that. And she didn't have any money left to book a name DJ. And Tommy had told her that I'd got lots of records, all sorts of tunes. It wasn't a particularly focused collection. It was a personal collection. But I had all sorts of music. It was like a bit of a record library. Lots of Prince, lots of Michael Jackson. Lots of Jacksons, lots of Chaka, lots of, you know, lots of soul, James Brown, all, all sorts of things, hip hop and, you know, whatever. But I had lots of music. And she asked me if I would want to DJ at her party from nine till two. And she was going to pay me 30 quid to do it. And at the time, this is like 1991 at the time, that was a lot of money. I'd started my degree by then. So strapped for cash living off a grant, husband moaning. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So 30 quid for a party seemed like a good idea, but then I just went out and spent my entire grant for the term on vinyl. (laughs) But it seemed like it was going to be a good investment to me. And I was, you know, I hold my hand up. I was right. It was a good investment because that party really, was the match that lit the touch paper. How did it go that night? The party at the number one went really well. I don't know how I knew how I wanted to look. And it was like a mix of Grace Jones and a bit Marvel superhero-y. I had a shaved head and I was in a bikini and like you do, like nobody did in the 90s. Nobody really did go clubbing like that. I don't know where I got it from. It was just an idea that I had of how I wanted to look. And I remember taking two milk crates full of vinyl and a seven inch record box full of vinyl because I didn't know how many records to play, how many records I'd need. I'd, I'd never done it before. I'd never played on a club system before. I hadn't even contemplated being a DJ before. I'd just bought records, but I'd been clubbing since I was 15 years old and I knew what it took to make a really nice musical journey from people coming in and putting the coats in to people leaving and wanting to leave singing. So nobody left. I played all night. I didn't go to the toilet. I remember constantly tapping the guy who was doing the lights and the sound, who was called Ian Bushell, and saying, Ian, Ian, what do I do now? Because I didn't know what the faders did. I didn't even know what the faders were called. And he'd say, push that button, move that fader. And then I'd do it. And it'd be like, right, right. Now what do I do? And he'd just keep telling me until eventually I didn't have to keep asking him. I figured the desk out. Did you attempt to mix? I don't remember. I think that first party was just play, blend, play, blend. You know, just 
nice fade. Well, I don't even think it will have all been a nice even fade because I knew nothing about tempos even, BPMs. I wasn't even thinking on that level. I didn't know what I was doing, but I didn't care. I just wanted to play music and I just played music and nobody left. So I, (laughs) I was more stressed out by the fact that I was a single black woman dressed in quite provocative clothing going into a gay club just off Bootle Street, which is where the key police station is in Manchester. And also bear in mind the centre of Manchester at that time, this is like 91, wasn't that welcoming to black people anyway. So I was more stressed out about getting stopped by the police when I left than going into a nightclub and doing something that I had absolutely zero clue how to do in front of a load of people who were going to be judging me on music, style, technique, whatever. I was more stressed out by possibly being stopped by the police than being made to look a fool (laughs) in a nightclub. So go figure. Do you think the DJ world was massively dominated by men at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that made it hard for you to get gigs? And do you think that you were dressing deliberately provocatively as a kickback at that male DJ world? No, 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 nothing to do with that. I didn't even think about it in terms like that. First of all, in answer to your first question, yes, DJing was male dominated every party i'd ever been to from being 15 years old all the dj's i'd followed they were all male i never went to a party that had a woman behind the decks now i know there were women behind the decks at that time because other of my friends have said yeah but there was this person and there was this person and there was that person And I'd say, what year was that? And it was generally around the same time or a bit later. Or they weren't DJing in the big clubs. They were doing like little house parties or shabines or something like that. They weren't in the key clubs and they were definitely not on the posters. They weren't getting any recognition for even being there on the lineups, on the posters. So yes, it was very male dominated, but I didn't dress provocatively to get anybody's attention at all, at all. That kind of marketing for DJs only really kicked in late 90s, early noughties, and probably I'd say even later with the DJs like Nicky Bellucci, who did it completely top nude. But in the beginning, first of all, I was DJing in gay clubs. So provocative dressing, I could dress as provocatively as I liked because they weren't interested in me. If it was a guy with his tackle out, they would have been a lot more interested in him. And I think the reason I was so comfortable with being dressed like that was because I knew that nobody was looking at me like that. 
I knew I could enjoy my body and enjoy wearing what the hell I wanted because it wasn't really important. It meant nothing. It didn't mean the same to them as it does to you as a heterosexual white cis male. Do you think you establish yourself quickly as a DJ? I established myself quickly as a DJ for lots of reasons. First of all, I had a regular residency. It was a monthly residency. So, you know, first of all, I've got the frequency. A regular residency at the biggest club in the city. You know, it's in the Hacienda for this groundbreaking LGBTQIA plus night. It had never been done before. We brought the tribes together. We've got lesbians and gays together from Liverpool, from Sheffield, from Newcastle, from London. We've got people flying in from all over the world to this night. It had never been done before. Up until that point, gay clubs were very segregated. The men went where the men went, the women went where the women went. The two tribes did not meet. And it was all thanks to them, really, why I had such a quick ascent because they created a night that was groundbreaking. I fell like a cat on four feet in the middle of this flesh night where promoters from all over the world were coming to see what they were doing. And every gig I got after I played at the Hacienda and played for flesh came from the promoters attending the flesh night. So I got my residency at the Zap Club in Brighton because Wayne Kurtz was a regular at flesh. I played at Heaven because James and Thomas from React were regulars at flesh. I played at Vague in Leeds because the promoters from Vague, same for Venus in Nottingham, James Bailey, like all those people partied at flesh. So it wasn't anything to do with the way I was dressed, although the look might have had something to do with it when I started getting magazine coverage. But it wasn't the sort of magazine coverage that was in like lad mags didn't exist then either. So that kind of thing wasn't what helped me particularly, but the club that I played at and the music that I played was different. And it was that that helped me to move quite quickly through the ranks. But I say moved quickly, but I still only really played in gay clubs until I moved to London. And why did you move to Paris? Because I wanted to. <laughs> Because I wanted to, you kind of skip through a whole 10 years there because I moved to London in 94 and I moved to Paris in 2004. So there's a whole 10 years of DJing really at some of the best clubs in London and also in Europe before I made the move to go to Paris. I was a resident for Ministry of Sound International Tours and one of the territories was France. 
and I toured quite a lot for them in France and I landed with getting a regular spot at the Queen Club in Paris where Thibaut Jardin was the director artistique. Um, the creative director and I found that I had an affinity for the crowds in Paris and I liked Paris as a place and I'd started to get a lot more friends there and I'd started to experience the nightlife a bit and the culture a bit and I had this idea in my head that I wanted to move there. Then I met somebody and I sold my flat so that's what I did. I moved to Paris And I didn't have a job, but I was still working for the Ministry of Sound. And I started off doing their dates in Paris. But then the owners of the clubs realized that I lived in Paris and that they didn't have to book me through the ministry anymore. So I became a resident at Red Light. And then that team moved across the square to the Mix Club. So by 2005, I had a weekly resident at the biggest club in Paris. So it was just timing really and wanting to move and wanting to experience a different culture and wanting to do something different. And I think also 2004, I felt like I'd got as far as I could get in the UK. I think I'd reached various blocks in my career They were also deciding factors for me moving. It's like, you know, sometimes when things aren't happening, you have to be aware that if you can't change yourself, then you have to change certain things around you. So moving overseas seemed like a good thing to do. And I didn't want to move to America because it was too far away from my family. And I thought Paris was just close enough that I could always get home and see my family far enough that I could experience something new and exciting and vibrant and teach myself a new language. And was it the best of times? It was amazing. Professionally and financially, it is the most successful I've ever been. I'm sure I'll get there again at some point. (laughs) But, you know, I don't know where all the money I I earned in Paris and France went, but I earned a huge amount of money. And I was at a level where I was on the same bill and on the same line, headline, as David Guetta, Bob Sinclair, Joachim Garud, Martin Solvig. Like the first party I ever played, the first street party I ever played in Paris, I played with Etienne de Crecy and Bob Sinclair. And I was always at that level and with that, genre of DJs I was always the only woman on the bill I did fantastically well in France I had a really good agent I was with a really good radio station which was Radio FG I got to know a lot of people very very quickly and I just worked extremely well and the music that I took out there they hadn't really heard before and the way I put my sets together and the way I performed was something that they hadn't seen before. You know, it was fantastic and then it wasn't. But, you know, it took nine years for it to (laughs) dip. Okay. Time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box of mine here. All the questions are on 45 Steve's Paulette. Okay. I'll dip into the box. You just say when and I'll pull one out. When? Can you put into words 
your intention at the decks? My intention at the decks is always to entertain people first. It's always to pick the best music that I can possibly find and kind of key in for the environment and the emotion of the place at the time. So I'm just trying to kind of feel into not playing exactly what people want because I'm not a jukebox and I do not take requests. I just don't. I'll probably play a record that somebody will have asked for, but I like to entertain people. And my hope always before I start a set is that people will go away from whatever they've heard me play and whatever they've seen me do, feeling like that was something that really lifted their spirits and made them feel either young again or just made them feel happy or made them feel like some people have said oh that was like a spiritual experience I've been called a shaman a pied piper I've been called all sorts of things that kind of feedback for me is awesome because I just want people to come on a little journey with me and have fun with music sing along singing's the best thing in the world it just frees the spirit just free the spirit, sing, dance, clap your hands, stomp your feet, just do that thing, you know, dance like nobody's watching. I just hope that that's the energy I give. That's my intention. Brilliant. Time to head back into the box for another question. Just say when, Paulette. Stop. Okay. This is a question suggested by a listener, Bart Harris, and it's how much time do you dedicate to new music over comforting favourites for sets? My general rule is one they know, two they don't. Oh, good rule. Or it's not always one they definitely know, but it's one that they feel that they recognise. So it will have maybe a familiar sample or a familiar beat or a familiar groove, but it won't necessarily always be that track. Sometimes it might be. If I'm playing disco, it will be a Dimitri from Paris remix of Chic, or it will be a Joey Negro remix of Diana Ross. When I'm playing disco, it's more likely to be the definite one they know. But then I try and get two or three they don't know. And then by the time you've got to about half an hour playing one they know, two or three they don't know, then you can play the rest of the set with entirely music that they don't know and you can twist it. But I just like to get warmed up. And particularly if there's been a really bad warm up before, that one they know and two they don't is essential. Do you have any other rules? Yeah, nobody in the box. It's too distracting. And this is even friends of mine. They forget that they're in the booth and they're being watched by people in the club. And it just looks really bad when you've got people behind you that are a bit seven sheets to the wind and they're falling all over the DJ booth and they're trying to talk to me when I'm trying to work. So my rule is even friends, nobody in the booth behind me. And that is also to do with having been sexually assaulted on a job as well so I don't have anybody behind me. Do you drink when you DJ? No I don't drink I haven't drunk since 2018. 
I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't take drugs. How is that? How is it? Fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. At the beginning when I stopped drinking, I was worried because I thought, oh, I'm going to be on a totally different wavelength to everybody in the club because, you know, everybody in the club is either drunk or, you know, some people are on drugs. We have to admit it happens. And I thought, am I going to be able to communicate still? Because I am just not going to get them. But music being music, I found that that was a total fallacy. And music being music, it works in the same way and sometimes better, for me, definitely, being straight. You're not the first person to have said that on this podcast. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. Just like for two hours or three hours, I've got equations running through my head. You know, my history has been very hidden and that is really the central point. Back into the box, Paulette. You say when. When. Is performance part of being a DJ? For me, yeah. Absolutely. But for lots of people, it isn't. I had a conversation with David Piccioni, ex-Azuli Records, not so long ago. And he was like, one of the reasons he stopped DJing was because he didn't like the attention and he thought it was too egotistical. And he said, yeah, but people like you and Geta, you love it. You feed off that energy. And I said, no, that's wrong. I don't feed off anybody's energy. I don't see it like that. I come at DJing from a totally different place. I was a singer before I was a DJ. So I see the DJ booth and this is also how I conceptualized DJing and why I took it as a path, because I saw it, first of all, as a way that I could still perform music, but not be reliant on a band sacking me because I looked too good. I could look however I wanted to look and I could perform however I wanted to perform and nobody was going to fire me because of it. It was all down to me. So. It was a secure thing for me to DJ, but in performance terms, it was like, yeah, but I'm still going to make that connection with people because I think it's important. Now, David said that he didn't enjoy that. And I understand that, you know, we're all different. You know, if we were all the same, it would be a very, very boring world. But, you know, there's lots of different DJs and it's all DJing. We all have our own style. Just like if you give all DJs the same 10 records, you will not get the same set off 10 DJs. A lot of people enjoy DJs who connect beyond the stage. And I personally think it is important, especially after the lockdown and coming out of the pandemic to get people to connect with each other again and for me to connect with them. I've been doing live streams for two years, so it's really important to get that connection, to get that personal connection back. So I am going to look up from a decks and I am going to sing along and I am going to wave at people and say hi and do whatever just to keep the energy turning in the room. I do a lot of qigong anyway. 
if you understand what energy work is, you kind of have to put it out there to get it back. And the best sets I play are when it's a two-way. Back into the box for your fourth question, Paulette. Say when. I'm going to take longer this time. Keep shuffling. <laughs> when. Huh. I hope you've not got the Pandora's hope question out of the bottom of the box. <laughs> this one is, uh, don't worry, uh, how much planning goes into your sets? Um... It's a weird one, really, because I'm always planning because I've got three radio shows and I am DJing every weekend. So I am listening to music pretty much every day of the week for a few hours a day anyway. But I very rarely will make a folder with the gig name and put a specific set of music into that folder because it can go horribly wrong and you need to be able to be super flexible with your music and to know your music kind of inside out so that if you go into a party with one idea of what it's going to be like and then when you get there it's lashing it down with rain. Everybody's soaking wet and miserable. There's a big queue to get into the party and you've only got half the room that you thought you were going to have. And the first record you play doesn't land. You've got to be able to adjust and read the room and make compromises and make a little bit of a shift in your music that if you'd planned a set, you would be absolutely in the biggest mess possible. So I don't, as a rule, and I have never, as a rule, planned a set. Even when I was starting out, I've never, ever written down what set. And if ever anyone sees me with a piece of paper with tracks written on it, now it's either the set list for Hacienda Classical so that I know what not to play, or it's a pre-cleared list for a set that is having to be streamed live. And we've had to clear a whole array of tracks for copyright so that the stream doesn't get muted. But in that list, which you'll probably number about 40 or 50, if I'm only playing an hour, I will maximum play 16 to 18 tracks. So I just try not to do it because you're just shackled by the wrong thing. And then if you play something and it doesn't land, it just does something to your head and you just lose your mojo really easily. So rather than lose your mojo, it's just like, right, I'm going to go up here and I'm going to have an idea of what I'm going to play first. And it's then the mad quadratic equations that go on in my head. It's quadratic equations or it's fractals or it's whatever. It's if that, then this. If not that, then this. And just like for two hours or three hours, I've got equations running through my head and binary and four beats, eight beats, 16 beats. I'm thinking in numbers, music transitions, everything. 
And this is why I don't take requests. Because when somebody comes up to you and says, play this, or they flash a phone in your face, it completely breaks the spell. And you've got to kind of flip out of whatever vibe you're in. And sometimes I'm having an out-of-body experience to look at somebody's phone saying, can you play this song off my Spotify? It's like, are you serious? <laughs> no. <laughs> Get lost. <laughs> One last question from the box, uh, Paula. Say when for the final time. Big when. No. Big when, when for the final Ooh. time. You said say when for the final time. So when for the <laughs> final time. I can take directions. I didn't just totally ignore what you said. When for the final time. And it's a big question. What do you wish you'd never done? Oh, God. <laughs> um, sometimes I wish I'd never left London because it would have been quite nice to have a flat in London that's worth an absolute fortune because I priced that flat that I sold for quite a lot of money in 2004 and it's worth a huge amount of money more now. So maybe I wish I'd never sold the flat. Not that I wish I'd never left, but I wish I'd never sold the flat. I wish I'd held on to it. That's one thing. Other than that, things I wish I'd never done... Lost my temper at an MTV party, which meant that I never worked in TV again in London. <laughs> what happened? Not telling you, it's in the book. Read the book. <laughs> the book being... The book being Welcome to the Club, The Life and Lessons of a Black Woman DJ. It's kind of bringing things full circle because I did my degree in English to do something like this. But when I graduated in 1994, I didn't go on to do my MA and I didn't go on to teach. I became a DJ instead, became a full-time DJ. This is a book about DJing and about me. And it's a book that is very timely and it's not a kiss and tell, although it has like little bits of gossipy stories and anecdotes, but it's not all about me. The jump off point for the book was the hidden histories of electronic dance music. And, you know, my history has been very hidden and that is really the central point. How in history do we manage to only know about one story over another and not just the rave happened because four DJs went out to Ibiza and came back and then Shum was born? Because while Shum was born, there were lots of different things happening all over the world for lots of different people who have created lots of parties that I've worked for. So that idea that you can have 10 people in a room at the same party, but none of them will tell you the same story. None of them will have the same experience, but they will all be at the same party. All right. Looking forward to that, Paulette. Uh, one last question for you. It's the end of the world and you have to play the last three records on earth. What would those three records be? Oh, God. What type of music? Any type of music. Why did The Doors, This Is The End, just come to my head? But you'd want something uplifting. So I don't want to be stuck with The Doors now. Everyone will think I'm a miserable... <laughs> <laughs> um, we Are Family. 
Sister Sledge. We Are Family is a great choice. What about starting with We Are Family, ending with The Doors and one in the middle? Oh, then it'd be Donna Giles and I'm telling you I'm not going. <laughs> Stonebridge Poppers Delight <laughs> remix. <laughs> Perfect. That's it. That and the doors. DJ Paulette. That was something else. That was how to DJ, but it was more than that. That was an absolute masterclass. Thank you so much, <laughs> DJ Paulette. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>